You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. The Naked Pravda. I'm recording this on Friday, June 26th, and I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On today's show, we'll look at the so called seventh studio case, focusing on stage director Kirill Serebrenikov, who, along with his co defendants, narrowly avoided prison time in today's verdict when he was sentenced to three years probation and fined 800,000 rubles, about $11,500, for his role in the alleged embezzlement of almost 129 million rubles about 1.9 million bucks, allocated to the Culture Ministry's Platforma Project, a state-led contemporary art incubator, where he was one of the directors. On this episode, I want to deal mostly with Kirill Serebrenikov's significance as an artist in Russia, but I should say a few words first about the case against him, which concluded today in a guilty verdict, as it almost always does in Russia. The embezzlement charges were possible in the first place because of a practice in Russia known as abnal, or obnalichka, which is essentially converting available funds into off-the-books cash. While this is obviously one way to pocket state subsidies, it was also the only way Serebrenikov's studio could procure the services needed to stage the performances that made up the Platforma project in the first place, like paying repairmen, prop studios, lighting technicians, that kind of thing. Investigators and prosecutors went through several rounds of expertise to assess how much money 7th Studio actually spent on Platforma Productions. The Culture Ministry allocated 216 million rubles, about $3.1 million, for these Platforma Productions. According to the authorities, the studio only spent about 88 million rubles of this money and stole the rest. Based on Medusa's review of the case evidence, these are highly implausible allegations that wildly underestimate the cost of theater productions and ridiculously ignore what 7th Studio accomplished. The most credible assessment of how the state subsidies were actually spent, says Medusa, indicates that Serebrenikov's studio actually got about 300 million rubles in market value from the 216 million rubles in government money that he actually spent. In other words, he saved taxpayers about 80 million rubles, almost $1.2 million. Those contradictions or seeming contradictions is what made him for, in my mind, such a telling avatar for culture in the Putin era. That's Joshua Yaffa, the New Yorker's Moscow correspondent, who was recently a guest on this very podcast to discuss his new book about social and cultural ethics under Putin, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. In that book, he actually has a whole chapter about Kirill Serebrenikov. So he had these high-level uh, connections, but he also uh, didn't uh, essentially didn't try to kind of curry uh, power or favor. He certainly didn't uh, pretend to be a kind of o- o- overly uh, loyal or obedient, um, you know, servant of the Putin system. In fact, quite quite the opposite. I think he made his political and civic sensibilities um, quite clear. But and for a while, that all worked. That that kind of contradictory construction held for many years. In fact, that was at least part the kind of 
secret sauce of early or mid-stage Putinism in that it allowed these sorts of figures to exist inside the system. It brought them in with money, resources, opportunity, uh, let them benefit from the system, and also allowed them actually to engage in uh, projects or performances that seemed uh, to cut against the system's values or interests or even in some ways to be um, directly opposed to it, not opposed to it politically, that, that we should say was always a red line uh, for the, the Putin system. But culturally, creatively, that was allowed, and, and, and Srebnikov really benefited from the opportunities that whole kind of contradictory puzzle allowed. I know you, you went and saw several of his of the performances that he directed or produced. Can you describe for people that, like, let's, let's imagine you're talking to a, a fairly you know, uh, mainstream normie who goes to maybe see like a Marvel film or something. Like, how would you describe one of Serebrennikov's plays? I think the first Serebrennikov piece I saw live was the opera The Golden Cockerel at the Bolshoi um, by uh, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. I must have seen it, I guess, in 2012, uh, not long after I moved to Moscow. And this was around the time when the Bolotnaya protests were going on or, or had just ended. And there was this, um, definitely in, in Moscow at least, this kind of protest mood in the air. And uh, Serebnikov staged this opera, which initially is from the early 20th century, the early 1900s. Uh, and it was such a clear and obvious send-up of contemporary uh, Kremlin politics. There was this military parade on the stage of the Bolshoi that, that uh, featuring these big missiles being towed across uh, the stage. There was an obvious kind of mocking homage to Russia's annual May 9th um, Victory Day uh, celebration. There was a a horde of children who were glorifying the czar in this kind of obviously satirical way, which seemed like an, a nod to these pro-Kremlin uh, youth groups like Nashi and others. There was this um, kind of somewhat uh, pitiful uh, minion who was prancing around stage uh, with an iPad that seemed to be a, a Medvedev kind of uh, illusion who, who at the time was just coming out of the presidency and had so publicly tried to embrace um, the IT uh, sector and, and IT um, startups. So here was the Bolshoi, this this cultural institution that is most directly linked with Russian um, state power and uh, might. You know, the box where Stalin came for performances, mounting this um, staging that was such a obvious. Um, winking, right? It sort of maintained this air of plausible deniability. It wasn't actually a kind of political demarche, but nonetheless, it, it, it was pretty clear for everyone in the audience uh, who was being made fun of here. I think Kirill Serebrenikov is a very unique person, not only for Russian theater, but for Russian art because uh, he built a community of free artists and that was one of very very rare examples of of creating something like this in russia and in moscow you're listening to masha alyokhana a founding member of the feminist protest punk rock and performance art group pussy riot i know you've heard of it and a co-founder of the website mediazona which reports on russia's justice system three years ago masha published a memoir titled Riot Days, about her infamous trial and time in prison. She's since toured internationally with a live performance based on the book, 
She says Serebrenikov was targeted because he's something unique in Russia's art world, an artist with access to resources who mobilizes the community and does daring work. Even in Moscow, it's also very, very censored. And people who have, who are brave inside to create something new, to create something about, uh, I mean, something free, something critical to the current regime, to stereotypes, to some very uh, problematic topics. It's amazing people. And Kirill Serebrenikov is one of them. That's why I think this criminal case appeared. Because uh, all the theaters, all the people whom I know, they all potentially have problems with uh, with this paperwork because our law is terrible. So all of them potentially can be criminals, I mean, at least. Why they choose the Kirill? Very easy, because he's the only person who built this artistic community against current order, let's say. So one of the things that I think is hard for people in the West to understand is that that Serebrenikov has, he has this avant-garde reputation and he's, as you've said, he's a very inspiring artist. And at the same time, and this is, this is in part how the criminal case came together in the first place, is that he has collaborated or he's, he's cooperated with state-run programs. I mean, this whole Platforma thing is this like state-run incubator that he agreed to be a part of and that the way the money was spent is then, that's how they're, that's the excuse they used to, to prosecute him. Of course, he, he worked uh, with the system. He's not a street artist, he's a theater director. And to be theater director, you should have a theater. And if you want to have a theater, you should like work with the system in Russia. It's obvious. And I think he was balancing, of course, and, uh, well, people who criticize him. I mean, Serebrikov is the only f***ing bridge between West and Russia on the theater field. And he's the only one of the very rare person who, uh, who didn't afraid to criticize all of that. I'm not familiar with... Uh, uh, with state institutions and theaters, state theaters uh, at all, because so you work you work with completely private funded groups. Then I wrote a book and I'm performing with this book. I was performing with this book last two years around the world. Like sometimes that was small clubs, sometimes that was like huge areas for like more than thousand people. But I never had. Um, an experience to to take money from uh, private funds for my for my play or something. I had an experience to try to perform here in Moscow, and that was very kind of at one point tragic experience and at second point uh, funny experience because uh, we performed here three times and after two of them venues were shut down. And in third venue, that was a huge uh, search just two days ago after Peter Verzilov was arrested in Art 4 Gallery. Masha is referring here to a police raid on the Art 4 Gallery in Moscow, which was searched just this last weekend as police simultaneously broke down the door of Peter Verzilov, another person from Pussy Riot and Mediazona. The Art 4 Gallery has hosted exhibits by Alyeg Navalny, Alexei's brother, and the art group's Pussy Riot, and Vaina. So now all of the venue two doesn't exist anymore and third have problems. So I know some things about state uh, state theaters. Of course they well 
they just serving they just serving i mean they kind of servers of what the government wants from them it's not uh, there is almost no no art there and you know even you you seen the transformation transformation of other very interesting theater director bogomolov one of the most interesting theater directors who made for my opinion very cool performances i've been there i i, I watched four and some of them I've been several times, and then he started to work on the government and saying, like, you know, Mayor Sabyanin is a very cool guy, and it's very obvious to self-censor yourself if uh, if it is, if you if you work for, for government, why not? Kirill Serebnikov never, never will tell this, never. Can you explain, like, because I'm... You know, like I'm not a part of this world. I it's very much outside of like my expertise. I I'm also not part of No, but you're you're one of the most famous Russian performers in the world, like it or not. I'm not allowed to perform here. I'm not allowed. I would be very happy, very happy. And actually some people would be very, very happy to invite us. But next day their venues would be shut down and Probably they, they will have criminal case against them. So I'm just, uh, I have friends, friends from this field. Yes, I, I have some theater directors who, with whom we worked and with whom we just friends and talk a lot. I guess I'm just, I'm trying to understand why are his, his productions so special? I know that they, they broach political, they, 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 they make political statements in a on a forum where that sort of thing is unusual but like it also seems to me that he's he's respected as just a, a darn good artist independent of whether or not there's a there's a good political message or not and so like i mean is it just that he like what is what is it that's so special about his vision in your opinion he's special he created a new place like google center with uh, all the artistic community around this when he took this place nobody knows about that that was a usual place with, you know, 19th century performances like uh, Graza Ostrovskova, you know, Graza. Nobody knows about that. And, uh, well, could you name like three names of people from theater field who, who made something similar? No. <laughs> no, because, uh, because of course, uh, of the political climate and, uh, you know, because of the fear because uh, because people are afraid, I think, to lose even what they have. And theater is not kind of an exception at this point. And he, he, he wasn't afraid. And you see, uh, when uh, last year this guy, Pavel Ustinov, was arrested on Moscow case, how many artists came to the administration of the president with uh, with a protest. Masha is referring here to an actor named Pavel Ustinov, who was arrested during the summer protests in Moscow in 2019. Ustinov was physically present at one of the rallies and was forcibly subdued by officers. And he was actually sentenced to three and a half years in prison for allegedly injuring one of those officers. But that was later traded for a probation sentence after a pretty powerful solidarity campaign that relied largely on colleagues in the art scene. Before we didn't have this artistic community, it's something unique. And uh, probably that's why they, they start to 
they they try to show him his place, kind of this. And uh, his criminal case, of course, uh, first uh, point of this case, uh, like ours, is an example of what can happen if you start to be, you know, so active, so bright and so critical. Joshua Yaffa agrees that Russia's political climate is what drove the case against Serebrenikov. But he points out that this weather has changed between now and when the case was launched three years ago. Perhaps that f- the, the case against him fit the mood of the day as the Kremlin saw it a few years ago, and perhaps his acquittal fit the mood of the day, or the needs of the day, I should say, of the Kremlin in the here and now. And, and what I mean by that is it just would seem like an, an unnecessary and kind of egregious finger in the eye of the uh, Moscow intelligentsia and, 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 and the kind of cultural intelligentsia around the country to put him in prison at a time when the Kremlin is so energetically, boisterously and absurdly trying to drum up support for this constitutional referendum. Um, I would think that, you know, uh, the political, uh, those in charge of political machinations in the Kremlin are, are clever enough to know that it would do an unnecessary disservice to their get-out-the-vote drive, which includes, in fact, trying to get prominent cultural fingers to record Instagram videos and other messages in support of the constitutional referendum. They'd only be making their job much uh, harder by sending Sotopnikov to prison. So, unfortunately, the logic may have been that cynical. In other words, it's, it, it, may, it wasn't a question of his fundamental um, guilt or innocence, but um, alas, in, in today's Russia, things aren't necessarily decided in, in that realm, but in this kind of more crude Machiavellian uh, political one. After speaking to Joshua and Masha, I still wanted to understand better how Sotopnikov managed for so long to work with the state while maintaining his artistic credibility. Lucky for me, I was able to call Katie Marie Davies, the features editor at the Calvert Journal, a wonderful outlet that covers culture, innovation, photography, and travel from Warsaw to Vladivostok. He's not the only innovative director in Russia, but he's a director who's managed to work within the state system. And in a country like Russia, like most countries, to be honest, that's so important because there's such limited funding for the arts. And... Where are you going to get your money from? The government is a huge source of cash. So if you want to do these kind of really interesting, fun things, you need to pay for them. And you can't always depend on the audience sales, like the ticket sales, because, you know, sure, you're going to fill out a small art house theater in Moscow, but it's not going to have that mass appeal. It's not the next Marvel movie, not, you know, hundreds of thousands of people aren't going to see it. So it isn't just a case of oh, advertising, oh, ticket sales. Sure, that will help, but you need a cash flow from somewhere funding. And in this case, it's funding from the government. Some of the things he did, you know, having an all-male cast for certain productions, um, you know, setting plays within new and different kind of time frames. You say all-male? All-male, yeah. I think it was Dead Souls. Is that progressive or is... <laughs> the- well, I guess it is because, you know, you, you, you have like roles that you're used to seeing a woman playing and then a guy to kind of fill that role you know one of the kind of biggest things in ballet was when they did an all-male version of swan lake and you know that was so out there and different so i know that kind of sounds weird but it's you know theater and drama it's all about you know trying different things and trying crazy things and seeing what you can do and pushing it and like i said for that you need cash where are you going to get your cash from the government the russian government obviously has a reputation for only wanting a certain kind 
of culture, a certain kind of theatre. And maybe when Kirill started working, it wasn't that strict. It was things were a little bit more permissive, a little bit more liberal. And he kind of knew where to draw the line and how to work within the system. He wasn't Pussy Riot. He wasn't, you know, running these kind of dissident underground performances. You know, he was part of the system and he was working it and still managing to make, you know, good art, great art. And so for this to now happen, for the system to kind of turn on him is perhaps what's so frightening that you can work within the rules, you can work within the system, you can reach the top of your game. And at the same time, the government can still turn on you, the state can still turn on you. You know, I think for a lot of people tuning in, this is going to be a good news. This is going to be fantastic. You know, he's got with a suspended sentence. When does that ever happen? So rarely, so many people are shocked about how lenient the court has been. But it's about this message that it sends out to other artists. I mean, at the moment, we're seeing a trial of an artist in the far east of Russia, Yulia Tvetkova, who is being charged with spreading pornography. And I saw those images, we were writing about it, and they're literally cartoons. They are the most, you know, I was expecting something explicit, kind of, when I looked at those pictures. They really weren't. Um you know, if you're listening to this, I totally encourage you to like go and look into the case and to look into the kind of art she was making. And then the fact that she's facing six years in prison. I mean, this has been such a high profile case because, you know, it's the Gogol Center in Moscow. It's a prolific director. It's a director that's been featured at Cannes. But what worries me, I guess, are these smaller artists who are still going out there and trying to make a difference and trying to express themselves. I mean, um, Yulia Tsvetkova was a feminist activist and working about, you know, body positivity, sex positivity. And maybe in this case, there's been a suspended sentence. But, you know, smaller artists out there aren't going to have this massive international publicity protecting them. And even though there's been a suspended sentence here today, it still sends a certain signal. It sends an idea that we're living. It sends the wrong message. It sends the idea that you know, the police can crack down on this kind of thing. And it doesn't have to be a strong case either. You know, one of the worst things about this case for me is how absurd it was, you know, the allegations that certain plays didn't go ahead, despite the fact that there have been reviews of them and they've won awards, you know, police forces across the country, you know, they're not being controlled by Putin, told you must do this, you must harass this artist. But they're going to see this as you know, a bit of a green light to kind of go out there and do what do what they want. And they don't have to build the strongest case. And if they feel that an artist is overstepping the lines because they're, you know, drawing, you know, women with their bras off, that that's what they can do. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from The New Yorker's Joshua Yaffa, Pussy Riot's Masha Alyokhana, and the Calvert Journal's Katie Marie Davies about the so-called Seventh Studio case, or, or the Kirill Serebrenikov case. It doesn't matter what you call it, but today we did focus on Kirill Serebrenikov. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first English-language show, and I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thanks for listening, and come back soon.